Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer in Tel Aviv. It's been a month since the day that Israel was stunned by the surprise attack from Hamas and the outbreak of war. It's been just over a week since Israel began its ground offensive in Gaza. Over the weekend, the Israel Defense Forces permitted its first group of journalists to embed in army units inside Gaza, among them Haaretz correspondents Yaniv Kubowicz and Anshel Pfeffer. Anshel Pfeffer joins me to offer a view from the ground with the Givati Infantry Unit in Gaza. He offers his perspective as a veteran war correspondent and senior columnist who has covered many other conflicts in Israel and overseas, including most recently the war between Russia and Ukraine. My interview with Anshel coming up. A surprise assault by land, sea, and air. How are you going to get these hostages back? The ruthless attack by Hamas has left us shaken. The walls closing in, the floor opening under my feet, total insecurity. Over the next few weeks, the Shalom Hartman Institute is launching a special series with Yossi Klein-Halevi and Daniel Hartman as they reflect on the current war in Israel. I have no vengeance in my heart and I have no anger. I just know that our life here in Israel is constantly this close to failure. Listen to Israel at War at shalomhartman.org forward slash for heaven's sake or on the For Heaven's Sake podcast feed. Anshel Pfeffer is back from Gaza. Anshel, when did you find out when you were going in and how did it unfold? Well, like uh, uh, many other journalists who have been covering this war, everyone is trying to somehow find a way in. There's no journalist being allowed into Gaza to report in the way that they were in previous uh, in previous uh, rounds of conflict or, or war there. The areas crossing is, was destroyed on October 7, for, for one thing. Um, so the only way to go into Gaza and report right now is as an embed with the IDF, which is one way of reporting, not, not an ideal way. Uh, there are various constraints, but uh, sometime on Saturday night, I was told that there was going to be a chance to go in uh, on Shabbat. And... Uh, after a few hours, uh, I got the notification to be at the base in Zikim uh, early afternoon on Shabbat, and that was it. We went in about three or four in the afternoon. Who exactly were you embedded with, and what kind of a unit were they? What were they doing? So the IDF is now operating in Gaza in uh, brigade combat groups, which basically means that there is the original brigades, which which were tank brigades or infantry brigades, have been... Uh, sort of broken up and mixed around. Now the group includes uh, usually a, a, at least one or two tank battalions, one or two infantry battalions, and there'll also be a combat engineering battalion or various companies or teams of combat engineers in what is called in the military professional jargon combined arms. So I went in with a brigade combat group uh, commanded by the 401st Armored uh, Brigade, but it's not. It's no longer just a tank brigade as it used to be. There are elements there of uh, the Givati Infantry Brigade and also uh, combat engineering uh, elements. So what were their tasks? What were their missions? And widening out, obviously you're with one unit. From what you could see, what are all of the units combined in Gaza doing right now? What's their goal and how are they pursuing it? So... Different uh, brigade uh, groups have been sent in both from south and from north. From south, they've 
bisected the Gaza Strip and cut it off the, the northern the northern part, which is Gaza City and the towns and suburbs around it. They basically cut it off from the south where most of the civilian population is now gathered. Uh, there's still a, a couple of routes out of uh, Gaza City so more people, can, if they choose or if they can, can flee the fighting. Um, Gaza City is now encircled in a military sense. There is there's Israeli forces to the south, just north of the Wadi Gaza, uh, the dry riverbed, and uh, to the east, there's there's the Israeli border and and various uh, units on the border itself, and to the west is the Mediterranean. There's uh, some uh, seen and unseen naval vessels there surveilling Gaza, uh, and I think the main emphasis right now is coming from the north. Those are the the units which are slowly working their way into Gaza City, and I was with one of them, which is coming in from the northwestern uh, direction. So basically, Zikim. I'm sure some of our listeners have been to Zikim Beach, and maybe some of them know the Zikim base, which in uh, normal times is the home command uh, training base. That's now the starting point for the for units going in from the northwest corner of the Gaza Strip, and that's where we went in. We drove in an armored column about five or six kilometers south to the point where one of the most uh, advanced points where the IDF is now in the northern neighborhoods of Gaza City. Much international attention, obviously, on the civilian population. For weeks, Israel has been sending the message to the civilians to get out of northern Gaza and to move south from your vantage point, which obviously was limited, but also what you were hearing from the IDF commanders. How successful has Israel been in getting civilians out of the places that they're planning to target and pinpoint to destroy? Well, in the two or three hours I was inside, I did not see one civilian. I didn't see any Gazans. The Hamas fighters are mainly underground, and, civi- and the civilians, at least where I was, were either concealed within the, the few houses which are still standing or have, have fled. The soldiers and officers I spoke to also said that in the eight days they've been there, they've seen only only a small handful of civilians still there. So it seems that at least in the areas to the north of Gaza City and the northern neighborhoods, most of the people have indeed fled south. The The IDF's assessment is that roughly a quarter of the one, just, just more than one million people who lived in the northern sector before the war, maybe a quarter of them are still there. If they are, then they seem to be in areas that the IDF has, has yet to reach on the ground, is more in the center of Gaza. There's a lot of controversy about schools, hospitals being targeted. Your report in Haaretz talked about your unit having to decide whether or not to target a school. Can you tell me about that? At the command, the advanced command post that we reached, there, some of the, there was still quite a lot of buildings standing around. This is, in, like I said, in one of the northern neighborhoods of Gaza City. And most of the buildings standing around are still intact, sort of overlooking the command post. There's a long, rather tall school building, which the wing closer to the command post has been destroyed. And one of the officers that's there said that they were not intending to shoot at the school, but they were fired upon from, by Hamas fighters from within the school and that they had no choice but to respond fire. And that destroyed uh, at least part of the building. There was also a nearby mosque with a, with a minaret leaning to one side, which they said had also been used to fire upon them. Tell us a little bit about the 
human side, the soldiers you encountered uh, fighting, what morale was like, what they were saying about their experience in the war so far, about how they've experienced the months since October 7th and their level of motivation, what's bringing them there and how they feel about the fighting? Well, we have to remember that the soldiers inside Gaza uh, have, you know, were called up on October 7th or on the day after, uh, the latest, and have been in that, in, in that military environment of training, preparing, getting ready to go into Gaza. Now in the last eight days have been inside, and they really haven't been listening very much to all this media discourse that we are creating and are part of, that... Uh, we're talking about the crit various criticisms of, of the government and of the policies and and the the the, the public relations war over over this which is happening around the world most of the soldiers are, have little idea of that of that happening as far as they're concerned their lives changed on october 7 when they were called from there most of them were on leave for simchat torah they were called up to their units and they've been in this ever since and that is what motivates them. I, I wrote in the piece, they still talk about the Shabbat. On, as far as they're concerned, October 7 was the Shabbat. And everything else, there hasn't really been Shabbat or regular days or time off. Maybe some of them have got a few hours to, 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 to go and see their families. But they've all been in this very, uh, you know, very intense environment of preparing and executing this operation. So, and you and you kind of and you feel that motivation in every conversation with them. Most of the stuff you ask them about, thing about things that are happening outside there. You know, yeah, we heard about that. Interesting. They're, they're not really. It's not really something that they're focused on or are barely aware of even. You mostly spoke to young soldiers in their basic service or also Milouim reserve soldiers, older people? No, I think uh, there, there's a wide range. Obviously, most of, the, most of the infantry soldiers and the tank crews are young men in their compulsory uh, service, so ages 18 to, to, to the early 20s. But there are officers there, uh, men in their 30s and 40s. There are uh, the reservists. Uh, I, I rode into Gaza in, in an armored vehicle together with a 32-year-old paramedic mother of two uh, who was also, was also called up in the first week and has been, ever since been preparing to, along with the, the rest of her medical team, doctors and paramedics and, and, and small medics and security detail. They've been preparing to go in and bring out wounded soldiers. They, they literally go in and out a few times every day. And it was, she was saying to me that she's been a reservist for 10 years by now. And this is her second war. She went in in 2014. And she said, in 2014, when I went into Gaza, I went in on foot. This time I'm going in an armored vehicle. And I, when I went in, then I was, I was single. And now I'm a mother of two. And she was like saying this in sort of a matter-of-fact way. But these are people who many of them have gone into this from their normal civilian lives and there really is a very wide range of characters and people in those units uh, ages backgrounds uh, really it's uh, it's a cross section of uh, of israeli society i guess i you know it was naive but i was a little surprised to find out that there were female soldiers inside gaza you hear that you know female combat trained units are mostly used for border patrol not for active frontline activity so you you, you did encounter uh, women soldiers in the advance headquarters post inside gaza city there were female officers from from the armored brigade in the in the medical teams it's true that the main combat units where there is a lot of women soldiers 
they are mainly border uh, border security units, and that's why they were so impacted on October 7. And they're less in the what the IDF calls the maneuvering units, which go into into a battlefield across the across the border. But there's still the the presence there is you know I'm, I'm comparing it to to previous Israeli wars and operations which I covered. You can see a, a much more significant presence of women soldiers nowadays. I was going to say, just like the older officers, uh, you also have uh, something to compare it to, having covered uh, 2014 and previous conflicts in Gaza with Hamas. Did you see significant changes, different challenges that they're facing that they did last time? Is this a completely different kind of operation, different kind of mission? How would you compare and contrast the two? Well, it's different, first of all, in the sense that they've already gone deeper into Gaza City than they went in either of those uh, operations. In 2014, the IDF went into into the Gaza Strip in, in very limited areas, perhaps two or three kilometers in, and, and operated mainly against the tunnels. In 2009, they went in a bit further, but not as deep as they are now. And the deeper you go, the more intense, uh, the more crowded, the both the civilian over uh, overground part of uh, of Gaza City is and underground the the tunnels and the exits from the from the tunnels and the, all the points that Hamas can and is trying to ambush the Israeli forces that you know this gets a, gets a lot more dense and it, and it makes it a very different type of warfare and so far the IDF has been using mainly heavy armor whether it's the tanks or the type of armored vehicles you, you which are carrying the infantry and some of the infantry soldiers said to me we haven't actually done much infantry soldiering yet We've barely used our own sidearms most of the time. We're in these big, heavy, uh, uh, big, heavy vehicles, and, and if there's any fire, it's being carried out by the gunners with the with the machine guns on top of the IFVs. Um, that will probably have to change at some point as they get go further into Gaza City because the, the city will become even more crowded, and using these type of armored columns inside a big city has to be done in a different way because they're so many places where from where they can be targeted they will have to deploy and dis, they will have to dismount and deploy more from their vehicles to be able to secure also the vehicles themselves so we're we're still at the end of this stage in the fighting where the, the armored columns are going in and taking up positions in and around Gaza City, the next phase in which they go into the city center will be very different. It's already been pretty deadly, though. There were about 10 Givati soldiers uh, killed just last week, uh, a few days ago, in the similar kind of vehicles that the soldiers that you were with are traveling in. Were they, did they speak about it? Were they uh, frightened? Were they, I don't know, overly conscious of that possibility after some of their uh, comrades have been killed? I was there on day eight of the ground offensive, so I think most of them have already heard and seen so much that, that there's, you don't really feel, you don't sense a sense of fear, but you do, you, they, they do talk about it all the time. And, and in the middle of last week, when that Namer fighting vehicle was targeted by two Hamas anti-tank missiles and 11 soldiers inside were killed, they talk about that and they say, we know we have probably the best... Uh, uh, armored vehicles in the world and the Namer and the Itana are, are literally have, have only entered service in recent years and uh, we also know and this is the, I'm quoting officers and soldiers we also know that even the best armor has its vulnerabilities in the army and the enemy is trying to find those vulnerabilities and our job is to try and find the enemy before they locate our weak spots.
in those areas, are the airstrikes completely over? Or are they coordinating with them? They move back. It gets struck by air. Are we totally in a ground phase now? Or are there are still airstrikes in those areas? Uh, well, there certainly isn't airstrikes in the areas that the soldiers are in. They're trying to make sure that there's as less uh, friendly fire as, as possible. Um, the stage of the massive airstrikes is over because now there are forces on the ground. The airstrikes which are being carried out now are either in the sectors of the Gaza Strip where the IDF is not yet operating on the ground, or it's mainly uh, airstrikes which are specifically aimed at uh, various points where where, where the, the forces on the ground feel or see that they're being uh, shot, at, they're, they're being targeted from. So when I in the area where I was, I didn't see any airstrikes. It doesn't mean that they're not happening, but when they are happening, they're much more uh, accurate and they're, uh, and they're much more uh, focused on helping the ground troops rather than uh, rather than using a, a large amount of firepower from the air just to take out targets. You mentioned drones as a new factor that uh, they hadn't had to deal with, say, in 2014 uh, as a challenge to keeping their forces safe and their vehicles protected. How have they dealt with that challenge? Well, the drones uh, which are being used by Hamas, and we saw that on October 7, also, also Hamas made some videos of it, uh, which were used to drop uh, rocket-propelled grenades uh, on the turrets of the tanks. This is something we actually saw, uh, we've been seeing for the last 20 months or so, in Ukraine, and I think both the IDF and Hamas were looking at you at the war between Russia and Ukraine, and learning various things from it. Um, that is uh, one of the vulnerabilities of of, of the Merkava tanks. The Merkava tank has trophy, which is uh, the first of its kind uh, active uh, protection for tanks, which is something which shoots out an interceptor that uh, that destroys an anti-tank missile uh, fired at the tank. But the, t the type of threat the trophy was designed for isn't similar to just the grenades being dropped from a drone up high. So they have need to weld on these, uh, what are called in, in technical terms, cope cages, which is sort of a, a metal grill about a couple of meters above the tank, which that, that, if, if a grenade is simply dropped on the, t on the tank, that grill just explodes the grenade before it can harm the, the tank crew. So this is just another of those many evolutions of, uh, of military technology. Sometimes it's these incredible new high-tech systems, and sometimes it's just a few pieces of metal. There's a lot of talk about the tunnels. Tunnels are not new, unlike uh, the drone threat. Do you feel like after all of these years now of dealing with Hamas and dealing with tunnels that there's a protocol for when these units encounter a tunnel, search for a tunnel, deal with a tunnel? No, there certainly is a is a whole doctrine and, and, and protocols about how to deal with them. No one's allowed to go into a tunnel at any point. If a tunnel exit is located, and they're located dozens of them, then specialist uh, uh, combat engineering troops are called in to, to blow the, the exit up. And there's a, so in some cases, if they know there's a tunnel or a larger underground space nearby, then they'll, they'll also be used of uh, various air-launched uh, munitions. It's very much a part of now, of part and parcel of, of Israeli warfare in Gaza. And it has been also in the previous rounds, but it has developed. Uh, but it also, it, it adds this element of, of uncertainty because any moment a, another tunnel exit that the forces miss can be used to ambush them. So 
you can't, they're, they're constantly uh, scouring the you know every, every in every armored vehicle now the, the ones that they, the ones that they're using now they have thermal cameras and other types of cameras which can scan all around and the gunners and the commanders are, are constantly looking at every point where they think a tunnel could open up to, to to try and spot it before it's used to launch a missile against them you wrote about how much of this even though they are at the ground defensive point is still screens is still you know high-tech capabilities can you talk a little bit about the interplay between fighting the war on screens and them being on the ground at the same time it is very stark because the moment the back entrance of a tank or, or an armored vehicle opens up and you get out, you're on the ground and there's the dust and the dirt and all the smells of a battlefield. Inside, not me as a journalist, but the, the commander and the gunners are constantly looking at these screens and the screens are not just f uh, to show them what's happening around their tank physically, but also gives them maps where they can see where the other vehicles are, where their other subunits are, other uh, uh, types of, of uh, intel can be fed onto those maps, whether it's from drones or other types of sensors. So you have this really uh, uh, stark uh, uh, difference when inside the vehicle, using the screen, you're, and you're outside in the dirt. I think it may be a lot easier for them. We spoke about the age of the soldiers there. These are kids who grew up with with their smartphones and so many screens as, as a daily part of their routine. So I think it's a lot more natural for them than it is for an old guy like me. <laughs> um, you mentioned Ukraine. And so I, you know, you were in covering Hamas and Gaza 2014, 2009. But really the freshest memory in your mind of covering war was the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is ongoing. I wondered, you were there at a very different perspective, seeing the war mostly from the side of the Ukrainians. Here you were embedded with the Israel unit. Do you have any reflections on the two experiences and how they felt different and how they felt similar? I think that the most important thing maybe people need to re remember about the difference between the Ukraine-Russia war and the war now between Israel and Hamas is that Israel and Hamas are physically there's there's almost no no uh, no distance between them the, the the kibbutzim in kfar aza which were marked down for extermination by hamas were literally a mile and a half away from from, from gaza city we, we these were neighbors going out to wipe out their neighbors and the same thing is true of the battle now you go in from zikim or from any of the other staging points and within minutes you're in you're in the outside uh, suburbs of of Gaza city this the, the it's it's a very different type very intimate you could say almost type of warfare whereas Russia Ukraine you travel for days sometimes to get to a to a battlefield and the main cities you know Kiev at one point was under threat from Russian armored columns, and then all of a sudden the war was very far away, and then you have cities which were on the battlefield, like Kharkiv. It's it's a very different kind of atmosphere, a very different type of war, which is being fought at different ranges. Um, and here, and it's also the very different types of enemies. Russia, which has big armored columns, but they're lumbering, they're old tech, they're badly uh, um, managed on the battlefield. They're so... The morale is so low there. I mean, when Russia did a, did a general mobilization, tried to bring in more, they did an emergency mobilization, tried to bring in, tried to draft more troops. It took them months and months to get 300,000. 
And even then, they had to drag out murderers and rapists from from prison. Say, you know, we'll give you, you'll, you'll get an amnesty if you go and fight in the front. That's how they got to three hundred thousand. It took them months. Israel, which has a population, and Russia's got one hundred thirty million population. Israel has ten million. Israel got three hundred sixty thousand called up three hundred sixty thousand reservists within twenty four hours. And instead of Russians, uh, say younger men. Uh, 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 fleeing the country is what, which is what we saw in Russia. We saw almost an entire generation of middle-class young Russian men running away. As we all know, the planes were packed with reservists coming home, whether they were backpackers or people who had been working abroad or students. So there's so many things which, which are totally different. And then obviously Hamas as a as an enemy is not is not like anything else in Russia, Ukraine. It's a non-state actor with a massive arsenal which created, you know, which committed the, the most awful war crimes in the Jewish community, in Israeli communities around Gaza. And uh, you know, let's not fall into too many uh, convenient but very inaccurate comparisons between the two wars. Uh, I think that your compare and contrast was uh, really fascinating and eye-opening. And I also just think about you having days before you went in with the troops embedded in the troops, having toured the destruction in the destroyed um, community of Kfaza. That's where you were, right? Yeah, I, there, and there are quite a lot of officers who I met who were on that very day on October 7th. Some of them were involved in the in the first rounds of the fighting, and many of them were there in the first few days as some of the units which were sent to to mop up the the Hamas fighters who were still in Israeli uh, territory and 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 begin the 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 gruesome job of uh, of removing bodies from uh, from those destroyed communities. So for many of them, this is very personal, and of course, many of them know people who were killed, who were who were taken hostage, uh, who were wounded. Some of them are from families which have been forced to, move, to to leave their homes because of the warfare. And it's it's very personal for everybody. There's no question about it. So now you're back out here where everybody's debating the end game. What will the end game be? The stated goal of the military slash political leadership is to completely eliminate Hamas military capabilities. When you were in there, how do they see their goals concretely? Do you feel like they have they have a very clear idea of what they're there to get rid of, what they're there to destroy. Do you feel that they're sitting waiting for more marching orders from political leaders? What was that when you talked to the more senior people that you were uh, allowed to interact with and talk to them? You know, how do they see the big picture? On the ground, the soldiers are very focused on their mission. They're not thinking that that far ahead. But as far as you go up in the IDF hierarchy, all the way to the very top, there is a growing sense of frustration that there is no clear strategic idea of of the next stage. So assuming the IDF succeeds and manages to destroy most of Hamas's military capabilities, manages to topple Hamas's government in Gaza, what next? The army will then be in be occupying an area in which two million civilians live. Who's going to take responsibility for that? Who is going to make sure that Hamas does not return? You know, the army does not want, to, or most of the people in the army don't have no desire to remain in the Gaza Strip beyond beyond the, this campaign. And, and the question of who will come in, who will take control, what type of of regime Israel prefers to see coming into play, coming to place in in Gaza after this, has a lot of influence over the next stages 
of uh, of the campaign and they're not getting any real answers from the government from this because this government is dysfunctional this government has so many radical far-right elements in it which are, which refuse to even contemplate some different type of palestinian control of gaza and, and dream of rebuilding jewish settlements there so no real guidance or strategic idea of any kind is coming over from the government and it's uh, it's both frustrating for the generals planning this war but it's also very damaging to israel just to wrap up we're a month into this they've decided suddenly a month in to allow reporters to embed with the uh, with the units both domestic israeli reporters as well as some international journalists i believe right so on Friday, they, they, a couple of groups of Israeli military correspondents, also Harris is Yaniv Kubovic, uh, went in for the Israeli media, and we've seen the, the, some of the reports already today and last night. Uh, uh, yesterday, Shabbat afternoon, they, two small groups of uh, correspondents representing international media. I was, I was there in my hat as a, as a correspondent for some British news organizations. Uh, went in. I also wrote about it, of course, in Haaretz. Um, this uh, attempt to bring in uh, reports and embe- reports and embeds is, uh, I think, so, you know, something which is obvious for, for the IDF to try and do. They they want the world, and obviously, obviously, first of all, they want the Israeli public to be able to see its army uh, operating, and they want the world to see what the what the conditions the IDF is operating under in Gaza. And do you feel like they're accomplishing their goal, the way the embedding is uh, is happening? No, well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> the reports are only coming out now. So, uh, look, I, th- I, I, as a journalist, always think that access to journalists is a good thing. Uh, I don't want to start making speculations of whether or not uh, this has uh, helped Israel in its uh, in, in its uh, Hasbara war, but. Uh, I think that uh, access and transparency, as far as uh, field security and operational security can allow, should be usually are usually a good thing. Well, Anchel, you've been doing amazing work. Everyone needs to run out and read it as soon as possible. Um, thanks for what you're doing, and keep going and stay safe. Thanks, Addison. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Anshel Pfeffer, to my producer, Amir Factor, and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.